Hello, and welcome to Talk Julia. My name is David Amos. My name is Randy Davila. So Randy, before we hopped on the call today, I tweeted from the Talk Julia Twitter account, which is at TalkJuliaPod, to ask people to tell us what they're building with Julia language this week or what they've been doing. And we got some really interesting responses, some cool stuff out there. For example, Elias Carvalho is contributing to the development of tabletransforms.jl, which is for making transforms and pipelines with tabular data, which is pretty awesome. But there were a couple of interesting projects one in particular that I wanted to point out, this one from uh, Clemens Brunner, heartbeats.jl. So I took a, a quick peek at it and it looks like a machine learning algorithm to detect heartbeats out of ECG data, which is pretty awesome. And he's got all of his code here that you can you can take a look at. But what was really interesting to me was that this code is from the Sleep ECG Python implementation, which he also wrote. But he mentions it's about 18 times faster than Python and only about two times slower than C. So that's really awesome. And he's got some benchmarks here that you can see how he did that. Uh, really great stuff. Thanks for sharing. Thanks everyone for sharing what you've been working on. But there's something I noticed about most of the responses that we got. Almost all of them are science related. One person... Was doing something with chemistry, I think, supervised learning model to predict BDEs. I had to look that up. I, I looked at her profile and she's uh, in computational chemistry. So I, I looked, I think it's bond dissociation energy predicting that and molecules and stuff. But, you know, a lot of science and, and mathy type stuff going on. And, you know, that's kind of the background we come from as well. Maybe you more so than, than myself recently, I've been doing a lot of other kinds of programming. I know you wanted to talk about something that's near and dear to our hearts, and that is graph theory and using the GraphJL package. Yeah, so um, I don't think we've mentioned this before in the podcast, but David and myself, like we, we sort of like became friends as undergrads because of graph theory. Not because of it, but that was like a big part of why we became the friends that we are today. Yeah. In particular, we had a um, an advisor, Dr. Pepper, who was a graph theorist, and David and I were really like energetic young mathematicians. And graph theory is really easy to kind of jump in and start asking questions and asking questions and pestering professors for answers, <laughs> trying to figure out answers on our own. And David and I even have uh, two two publications together. I think we have three, actually. Yeah. Yeah, there's three. Okay, so for those of you that don't know what a graph is, a graph is a discrete mathematical object that is descriptive of relational things. Right? So anytime you can define a relation, like a binary relation between objects, anytime you can do that, you can define a graph on that object. Yeah. For example, on the graphs.jl like homepage, there's several packages to interact with graphs. But just to like get started, if you wanted to maybe um, examine a built-in graph like a path. So a path graph is a sequence of vertices and edges. There's no loops. It's kind of a, one of the simplest families of graphs that you start with when you learn about graph theory. If you um, type using graphs, and then I'm going to also look at using graphs plot or graph plot.jl, the graphs package has these path graphs built in. So in front of me, I have like a path graph on six vertices. And then if I want to know the number of nodes, I would type NV, which number of vertices. So one thing that I immediately noticed when looking at this whole uh, uh, suite of packages on graphs is that they use vertices instead of nodes. Yeah. And as a graph theorist, my PhD is in graph theory, I tend to like that more. <laughs> and <laughs> the reason why I would type nodes automatically when, when working with programming or say nodes when programming with graphs is because 
I come from using a package called NetworkX in Python. Yeah. And NetworkX in Python is kind of the standard package for doing graph and network analysis in Python. And they like to use nodes. But I immediately noticed that with all of these Julia packages, though, for graphs, so graphs, light graphs, graph plot, all of these packages, um, they prefer nodes, which is kind of nice. So if I want to like maybe look at the number of edges, it's really simple. It's, it's very natural just to call a function NE. Also, the graphplot.jl package, I really like how the graphs are formatted out of the box. So graphplot has a function called gplot, and it will plot the graph that you've instantiated. Um, and by default, this, this Springer layout, which is kind of the default layout in uh, NetworkX as well, this is a great package and has all of the functionality that you would possibly want. So for example, a lot of times people are interested in distance on graphs, not like Euclidean distance, but if you start at one vertex and you uh, want to traverse to another vertex, what's the shortest number of edges that you need to pass through to reach the other vertex? So that'd be like the distance between two vertices. Yeah. Right. And this is also important with uh, weighted graphs when graphs have weights on the edges which there is a simple weighted graphs.jl package that you can use for this, where then you might want to be concerned with uh, like a famous problem is like the minimum spanning tree problem. Right. Like finding a spanning tree, which is a subgraph that has no cycles and contains all the vertices in the supergraph and has minimum weight if you sum all the weights on the edges. Um, but yeah, so like all of these, these things, you, there's algorithms built in to graphs.jl. So like cycle detection, here's MST, the minimum spanning tree problem. Um, they have uh, graph coloring, which is one of the most well-known graph theory problems where you want to color vertices so that no two vertices that share an edge have the same color. This is related to this famous four-color theorem for maps. Linear algebra, lots of uh, linear algebra functions and um, properties here. And the reason for that is that uh, graphs and linear algebra are highly related. So you can represent a graph as a matrix, and you can also represent a matrix as a graph. This is a relationship that is um, probably the strongest among like, uh, like the computational fields and the graph theory fields is this, this tie between linear algebra and graph theory. Uh, David, tell them about uh, GrimPy. And then I'll, I'll mention why I wanted us to talk about that in a second. Okay. So Randy uh, and I started developing, I don't know how long ago it was now. It's been several years a Python package, it's, it basically builds off of network X that we use to calculate things called graph invariance. So if you have a graph, you know, you can, you can move the edges, move or move the vertices around and sort of draw it in many different ways and different shapes and everything. But there's properties of the graph that uh, don't change no matter how you, you draw it. So those are these variants. And a lot of them are really difficult to to calculate, but you know you'd, you'd wish if you're doing research, you'd want ways to be able to quickly calculate them. Oh, they, these a lot of these things are are um, MP hard to compute or MP, MP complete decision problems, and something that we noticed were not available on Network X, and then also right. not available on Graphs.jl currently. Yeah, there wasn't really anything that we found out there that would would calculate a lot of these things that we were interested in for our, our research and stuff. So we made this Python package that does a lot of these, you know, calculates invariants. And it's actually, it's seen some some use by other, you know, folks, other uh, academics, and still kind of get emails occasionally from people that find it and, and uh, have a question about something. But honestly, you know, after working with Julia for 
I guess I've been doing it, what, for a little month or so now, a little over a month. Uh, I would really like to go back and, and redo a lot of that stuff in Julia and uh, and either contribute to the graphs JL package or, or do something outside of it that could, that works with it, um, something like that. But I know, Randy, you've actually done a lot of work already taking some of those algorithms. Yeah, that's exactly what we're getting to. So one of the, the main reasons why David and I created GrimPy for calculating these invariants was to make something called an automated conjecturing program, which this is a program I wrote in Python called TX Graffiti. An automated conjecturing program automatically generates new mathematical questions for researchers to work on. I started like looking into making a GrimPy version type of program in Julia with graphs.jl, but I needed an optimization solver like Pulp was in Python. And I found something that's pretty awesome. And I think a lot of people are very familiar with that are listening called Jump. Jump is the like the coolest package for performing mathematical opt- optimization in Julia and supports a bunch of different types of commercial solvers and open source solvers for solving problems like linear programming, mixed integer programming, uh, semi-definite programming, and even uh, non-linear programming. And the interface for it is awesome. <laughs> I love showing students how to use Jump to write linear programs for solving like mixture problems or like basic things you would find in operations research, right? Like I've, uh, I teach operations research every once in a while and I use Jump and Julia for these like simple problems because it's so easy for the students to pick up in that the way that you set up problems like looks exactly like the textbook. So for example, look at this simple program in front of me. You have a model where you're instantiating an empty model, but then you call these at variable macros to add variables. So you're adding to the model some variables, say like three of them. And then in that same at variable macro, you have bin. Right? So that's like the, the type of, yeah, exactly. So binary yeah. objects. And then you have constraints and you can just list out the constraints as they would appear in a textbook, honestly. Yeah. So like X1 it's is really less than nice. or equal to X3. X2 is less than or equal to X3. X3 is less than or equal to X1 plus X2. It's really cool. And I haven't used, I haven't like written these like graph theory optimization problems in Julia since like 2019, but I have a whole list of them somewhere on my desktop. I have almost every single thing that we did in GrimPy. I have in Julia with jump and graphs.jl. Nice. So it's like the Julia version exactly of what it like pulp and network X. I want to go back real quick to, you know, you were talking about the linear algebra module in graphs.jl. Yeah. So I have been interested in sort of the interplay between graph theory and linear algebra for a really long time. It started when we were undergraduates. And one of the things that I did when I was an undergraduate for my senior project was work on a problem that was related to spectral theory, where uh, not to get into all the gory details for the non-mathematicians out there. But basically, if you have a, a square matrix, then there's these values called eigenvalues that get associated with it through the characteristic polynomial. So these things you can calculate on on graphs and everything. And these eigenvalues have, well, they're really important from a linear linear algebra standpoint, but they have other applications, not only in graph theory, but also in applied graph theory. And the the particular arrangement of these eigenvalues, which if I remember right, it's it's the absolute value of the product of all the eigenvalues. I could, maybe it was the sum. I can't remember now, but it was called the graph energy. And it was related to chemical energy uh, because the graphs are used a lot in modeling, uh, like molecules and and things in chemistry. And uh, this notion of graph energy was related to like the chemical energy of a, of a, of a molecule. 
but uh, I came across a long time ago an idea. I came across it on uh, Randy. You'll know who this is, Fan Chung. Mm -hmm. uh her her website but it was this idea of taking graphs and turning them into music and so having you know my background in music as well immediately piqued my interest i looked at it and kind of filed it away in the the back of my brain for a long time but it it recently surfaced again and i i dug some more into it and ended up writing a julia program to uh to mimic what uh what what this was what this was doing to create these uh musical chords and it was a really nice experience but just to I guess, kind of set the the stage. If you imagine a cycle on four vertices, right? So you have four dots and you connect them in a cycle in with, with line. So it just, it looks like a, like a square or a rectangle. Then the eigenvalues, you have a zero eigenvalue, one of those, you have eigenvalue of one, which has multiplicity two, that's like algebraic multiplicity in the characteristic polynomial. And then you have one eigenvalue at, uh, of two. You can convert these to frequencies. So I guess I, I should clarify, I'm talking about all this stuff. What matrix is this coming from, right? So you, you take the graph and you calculate its uh, normalized Laplacian matrix. So it's a matrix that's a, that you can calculate from the graph itself. You calculate its uh, eigenvalues and you get these uh, these values. The normalized Laplacian matrix has some nice properties that guarantee that those eigenvalues are always going to be in the interval from zero to two. So it gives you kind of this closed interval that you can map to different things. And one of the ideas is, why don't we take that and map it to frequencies that we can listen to? So you take zero, and which is the smallest eigenvalue you can have, and you map that to the note A at 440 hertz. And then you do the same thing at two, or sorry, at a, at one, the value of one, you map that to a one octave higher. So that's 880 hertz. And then you take two and you map it to another octave higher than that. That is uh, 1,760 uh, hertz. So the actual formula to do this is it's just two to the X times 440 hertz. So you can take that and you can, uh, you, you get the different tones for each eigenvalue. And if you have a, multiplicity of greater than one like if you have two eigenvalue I, well technically it would be two eigenvectors with the same eigenvalue lots yeah. of math stuff right sorry to <laughs> get super nerdy on it but but if you have those then basically you just double the amplitude of that note it, it just increases how loud it is in the resulting uh like notes that you get and then you can play them all together in a chord and you get a chord out of the graph what is absolutely mind-blowing to me is that it, it's not just noise which, which to me was just like kind of kind of shocking. Like, why was it not just not just noise? So yeah, I was just kind of blown away that uh, that they actually sound uh, as nice as as they do. And maybe I'll play some. Um, well, I'll for I'll play one right now. <laughs> uh, interesting tones. So I was like, okay, I want to re recreate this, and uh, I started to uh, build it out in Julia. It's just a little script. And what was interesting is so I had to use the graphs.jl package and I had to calculate the, the normalized Laplacian matrix, right? And it has a you know a composite type called normalized Laplacian, but I couldn't figure out how to use it. The the docs didn't didn't quite get me there. Fortunately, I found an issue, a GitHub issue on their GitHub repository where someone else was trying to do the exa exact same thing. And I read through it and found a a, a solution that looks exactly like the one that I have in uh, in my program. I'll, I'll put a link to this if anyone is interested in actually 
seeing it. But I got to use a lot of, you know, cool stuff, right? Like I got to use some of like the Unicode support and put like the little hat on top of the, the A for like the normalized adjacency matrix and, and on top of the L for the normalized Laplacian. I learned about using the sparse arrays package, which was really nice. And then also just the base linear algebra package in Julia, right? To get a matrix uh, and actually compute its its eigenvalue. Oh, it's so awesome. I love it. Yeah, I yeah. love that it's base Julia. <laughs> I know. It's great to just have that in there. Not You don't have to install anything else or uh, anything like that. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I also got to play around with plotting the graphs. So um, I have uh, a couple of actually scripts that I wrote. One of them just uh, just creates these, uh, you know, creates the tones and makes the chord or the scale, which would just be like playing the tones in order, not stacked on top of each other. And to do that, I used this wave package, WAV, right, for making wave files, which made it really, really easy to just. Was that uh, a part of that 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 music suite, like the? No, no, it wasn't. It's a, a separate separate deal uh but i thought about playing around with that even that we we talked about a couple of uh, episodes ago to maybe try to actually produce like the musical notation so you would like feed it a graph object and it would give you like an image that has like the musical notation for that graphs chord <laughs> kind of neat but yeah the wave package made it really easy to just create wave files and then i also plotted these i used uh the graph recipes package have you seen that yeah, Randy? yeah i've seen that okay. one but uh, anyway, it was a lot of fun and I really got to try, you know, a lot of the things I've been learning about Julia in this. And I'm really, really happy with how it all came out looking, how it how it worked. Now, we should probably like let the let the listeners know that this is your your first real experience programming in Julia. Like, yeah, you have yeah. programmed in Julia, but this is the first time you had like a task that you really wanted to do. And you use Julia as the as the only language to do it. Yeah, I'd done little experiments and like I'd made like a little like number guessing game and like just practicing with like you know, you're making a module and learning how to do that and you know little little things like that. But yeah, this was the first time I really sat down and said, okay, here's this thing I want to build and I'm going to build it uh, in Julia. And it was it was a really fantastic experience. I learned a lot, but I think the biggest takeaway for me was that Julia is a real dream to work with the whole way through from from working with the package manager and installing the packages to, you know, running it, writing the code and and everything. Uh, it was it was nice. Well, listeners have access to this, this script that you wrote. Yeah, it's publicly available. I'll post the link with the show notes so that so people can see it. Awesome. I think that um, I'll make like a, a little sample repository to demonstrate how to use graphs.jl and jump to calculate the independence number of a graph. And I'll, I'll make oh, like a cool. little repository and I'll have that available for our listeners to, uh, to go check out so they can like see the things that we're starting. We're starting to code more and more in Julia. So if it, if our listeners want to see it, like I don't have a problem putting my code somewhere for them to look at it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I kind of ran into when I was uh, doing this project was I I had read some articles and you know in the docs and stuff that okay I want to create a new environment right like I want to create a, a project environment for this that has the the dependencies that it needs I don't want to put it in like my global Julie environment so I used the you know the package manager to activate uh, a new environment and I installed the stuff in there. Uh, I wrote my script and the first time I went to run it, I, I typed, you know, Julia and then uh, whatever the script name was, I think I called it like graph music 
uh, I typed juliagraphmusic.jl, hit enter. And the first thing I saw was a module error that it couldn't find the graphs.jl module. I'm like, okay, that seems really weird, right? Like I installed it. But I thought it's probably not using my project environment. Like the Julia command is probably not aware of this project environment. It's just using my my base Julia environment, like my global environment there. So I looked into it and sure enough, that's exactly what, what was going on. It was like, okay, well then how do I tell it to use this uh, project environment? And there's a command line options reference in the manual. I saw, okay, there's this dash dash project option and you can actually set, you can give it like a path to wherever the project files are, like your, your project.toml and your manifest file. Or there's a default option where of this at period, which will just use, it'll look in the current directory or go up, you know, the it'll walk up the parent directories to see where it finds the, the project files. So like the, the toml file? Oh yeah, I didn't even like, yeah, it'll find the toml file. So if you want to run, a, just a, like run a script, uh, and use the whatever the project environment that you're in right now is, you would type Julia dash dash project and then the name of the script that you want to run. I thought, you know, so I guess I had two thoughts about that. One, like on the one hand, it's like, okay, I, I actually kind of like that I have to explicitly tell this thing what project to use um, because I like explicitness. It, it's just, I know exactly what's happening. There's not, there's not like something in, invisible that's going on. Uh, but on the other hand, that's a lot to type <laughs> if I'm like running it mm-hmm. a lot, right? So I thought there's got to be like a shorter way or or something. And I found in the environment variables part of the documentation, there is a an environment variable uh, called Julia project that you can set. And if you set this to that at dot value, then by default, when you type Julia to use the Julia command, it will look, it'll search for like a, an existing project wherever you are or like up the, the directory tree of the parents. So you can, you can give it that sort of default behavior of not always, you know, defaulting to the global environment, but use, you know, whatever environment uh, for my project. But I want to say that I actually decided not, not to do that. I thought, okay, that's pretty cool. I'll just set that you know, and have that, you know, always set to that default uh, or not to the default, but always set to that at dot and make that my Julia commands default uh, behavior. But then I thought, you know, actually, I don't want to do that because then I'm going to get used to it on my machine. And if I go anywhere else and I'm using it, I'm, I'm probably going to forget. And it's, yeah, you know, and it's not going to work that way. And it also, it's like, well, I like, I like being explicit. I like saying that I want to use that project. So what I ended up doing is I opened up my bash.bash RC file where you can set your environment variables or create aliases for commands or things like that. I actually added an alias to it, which is Julia P. So this creates a Julia P command that it just is short form for Julia. Yeah, and just initialize the project. So I just do not initialize the project, but like if I want to run the the file, run my script using the current project, I just type Julia P space, you know, myscript.jl as opposed to Julia uh, myscript.jl. And that way I still have both commands, right? Like I still have a Julia command that is always going to use the global environment. And then I have this Julia P that will like search for the, um, the project environment. So just a little, I guess, tip I wanted to throw out there and, you know, things that I learned and experienced while I was doing my, my first um, end-to-end Julia 
uh, Julia project? I've, uh, I have to admit, though, that like, or note that I've, I've suggested um, altering the bash file before for students and had some pretty horrible results from it just because like they'll get rid of things and not remember what they got rid of. And no. then like running like Conda or like something else just won't work anymore. So be careful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, your, your dot files, like your, your bash RC, all these like dot files and stuff. Yeah. You want to be careful uh, with those, but they're also a really powerful tool, um, you know, to, to make sure you use them. So, but uh, I don't know if you have any closing thoughts on, on anything. So I guess real quick. So what, what do we, what do we say? You're going to create a, a uh, little GitHub repo that people can look at with a example of using jump to calculate the independence number. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it'll be up by, uh, by the time that the, the podcast posts, but a link should be given so that over the coming weeks, you'll see code start to appear. Basically I'm, I'm I think I'm just going to start putting together all these, um, these integer programs to calculate the graph invariance that we might make into a package one day. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that'd be another really fun experience. Actually, putting together a package that we can register and learning that whole uh, whole process. One thing that I'm really curious i've I've read a little bit about, and I've done like very minimal uh, in you know in in real life, like just some real small examples. But uh, into testing with Julia, like how do you actually run mm. uh, run tests and everything? Uh, you know, there's like this at test macro and stuff that you can use. And uh, anyway, so. That's that's something I'm kind of excited to dig deeper into and learning about, you know, just the whole packaging process. And, and getting I it think registered. this year I'll probably make a, a, a automated graph program, automated graph conjecture program in Julia. That'd be like awesome. Because I, I, I have all the data. I have like hundreds of thousands of instances, instances of graphs. Right. Um, and as soon as I know how to calculate the data on them, the process of writing a, 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 an AI program to automatically sort through possible conge- questions to ask and sift them. I think Julia would be really fast at doing that. <laughs> and um, it would give me motivation to work on it again. I haven't worked on <laughs> this conjecturing um, program in a while. I wrote this program while uh, working on my PhD. Like I, I didn't, it appears in my dissertation at the, like the very last page. Many of these problems were, but I spent hours and hours and weeks and months working on this program. But once I got the pro- the initial versions of the program running, it started producing conjectures that happened to be new and interesting, which my advisor and I worked on. And I think by the time I finished my PhD, I had like, I had like 18, 17 publications and like discrete math, discrete applied math. Wow. Because of that like program, because it was just spitting out so many different problems. That was a tangent, but I want to do that in Julia. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks again for hanging out and talking about Julia with me this week. Awesome. And uh, I guess we'll pick back up next week. Sounds good. See y'all then.